In Colorado, you can legally gamble in Blackhawk, Central City, Cripple Creek, and licensed online sports betting. Protect our communities. Learn more at playlegitco.com. A message from the Colorado Division of Gaming. Gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is going to be fun. Uh, not because of subject matter, which is serious and deep, but because of who's talking about it. A new guest, which is always fun to have on the show, a fresh face, if you will. Another of our great Young Voices contributors, Leslie Corbley, joining us from out. She Usually she's in Utah, but she migrated over to the East Coast temporarily. How are you, ma'am? Thank you for joining us. I'm doing fan- doing really well. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate you being on the East Coast so don't have to worry about the time change because that's the first thing I was worried about Uh, because I lived in Vegas and I still can't figure it out. Um, Let's talk a little bit about warrants. You've been writing about them. Let's start big picture and then we'll dig down on this. Do we just need a different definition of warrant? Because I think the it's too big a term. It's too inclusive. And as we're rapidly finding out and as you've been writing about in places like Town Hall and elsewhere, we we've got situations that the current laws on the books for warrants just never even envisioned when it comes to things like the geofencing things like what is and isn't private information do you own your own name as we're seeing in things like college sports i think the term warrant we're going to need some different nomenclature somewhere in here just to get into this issue to start with aren't we well, part of the problem really is that the constitution has a a specific definition of warrant and I believe geofences, for example, are constitute general warrants. So there's a lack of particularity there. Um, There's no suspect, for instance, on the front end of those. When those warrants are issued, they are essentially fishing expeditions where law enforcement is seeking a cache of data for the purpose of identifying a suspect rather than having a suspect in mind and issuing a warrant on the, um, you know, that's specific to that individual. So there's that that issue, which I would argue is most is outside of the realm of constitutional um, definition of a warrant. I think I would call that a general warrant, which is actually what the Fourth Amendment was designed to protect against. And then you do also have um, the problem of scope of warrants in a digital context, which is really what I was trying to touch on in that article. Um, there's a lot of confusion about warrants out in the public right now, <laughs> given some of the news stories coming out. Uh, I think some of that comes down, frankly, to ignorance on the part of the media. Um, there's often conflating terms, uh, not being specific as to what you're discussing. And then, of course, there is the fact that constitutional jurisprudence as it relates to the Fourth Amendment has uh, evolved quite a bit over the past uh, you know, 50 or so years. And so you have that kind of confusing factor as well. But as it relates to the digital warrant problem, the scope of warrants in a digital, digital context is that you don't have a physical space. Um, and I tried to touch on that in the article, you know, that in a physical space, you're to some degree bound by that, right? You walk into a home, you kind of know what the different rooms are for. If you're, I, I can't remember the exact, um, example I gave in the article off the top of my head, but essentially if you're looking for a bike, you wouldn't look in a 
a stolen bike, you wouldn't look in a desk drawer, right? I mean, you're kind of bound by that. In a digital context, you really don't have any of those typical barriers. And so you know, if you're law enforcement executing the warrant, it's it's almost as if you're you're going to kind of be more inclusive, right? You're going to pull more information maybe than than in other contexts because it's all information, right? So it's almost more akin to classic warrants where you would be looking for, um, let's just hypothetically say child pornography where that could be stored almost anywhere in a home, right? And this is getting into because the physical entrances into the digital is part of the problem. You talk about the Eastman cell phone being seized. We saw the news story about the congressman from Pennsylvania getting his cell phone seized. The problem is a cell phone is not like a house where you can you can like you said, you used in the example in the article. You have a rifle that's not in a kitchen drawer. OK, because <laughs> it physically can't get in there. You can you can. And we even saw it with like the Trump search warrant where they're supposed to go to certain rooms and there's this room and you can't go in this room and whatever. And w people can hash that out later. You can't do that with a phone. You can't do that with a laptop. You can't do that with a thumb drive. So when you take somebody's cell phone, it's, I guess I theoretically you could say, well, you're not allowed to look in their You can look in their photos, but you can't look in their download folder. I guess theoretically you can do that, but practically that's not the same thing. So the laws just haven't caught up to this stuff. Isn't that kind of the core of the problem we go in? This is like there's still those physical barriers, but the information isn't physical. Yes. I mean, it's 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 really difficult to apply even the best principles of law to this kind of a problem because you run into situations where you look at a phone, for instance, and they're not organized the same. You know, you take my phone and you see how my apps are arranged and you look at your phone and you're not going to have the same, even the same nomenclature um, for how the apps are organized. And so if you're law enforcement and you have, like, let's say you have followed you have probable cause, you follow proper warrant protocols, and then you go to seize that device. How are you going to know to sort through what is and isn't relevant to your investigation, right? So it almost is as if you kind of have to be over over inclusive. It's 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 not particularly easy to figure this out, which is why you see um, it appears as though we're moving towards having having someone to review that, right? So in the case of Eastman, you're going to have potentially attorney-client privileged information on the device. And that, again, poses more problems because phones are multifunctional, right? They don't just store a lot of information, but they store a lot of information that is for a bunch of disparate purposes, right? So that, that also lends itself to kind of the problem that we're running into, which is that you're not going to have just one purpose for that device. Therefore, when it sees, you're going to, again, have more, far more information than you need. And, part, and, and in many situations, a lot of information that you shouldn't have or, or has nothing to do with the investigation.
Right. And it's not just the information is different. The investigations are different. So you go back a couple of years when this first kind of got in the news cycle, uh, the mass shooting in California, and they wanted to get into the iPhone and, and Apple resisted that and they it went to court and all that. So that's one piece. And then you have something like the Eastman thing where you have, you know, we, we th- there was some kind of shenanigans. You can parse that out legally later, however you want to do it. So they want to see what's there. Well, you've got the information, but there is attorney-client privilege and there is personal information. So it gets complicated. The investigations aren't the same either. So now, you know, we have a lot of lawyers on this program to explain this stuff. They don't even agree on this stuff. We know there's malfeasance. We know that things get abused. We know that people's individual rights get trampled. But isn't it fair to, as a starting point to go, even if law enforcement is really, really trying in this environment with the current laws, they don't even have a chance to try to do it the right way. And that's going to foster an environment for even more malfeasance, isn't it, if they don't get a handle on this? Yes, that's exactly like it, Zern, is that these are very complicated um, problems that we're facing in the, uh, the the judicial context as far as not only as I mentioned earlier, are is a warrant valid? Have we met particularity? Are we perhaps out of bounds um, with that? But also, again, just that digital scope, the digital world presents very different problems than the physical world. And it's not remotely clear how to solve those problems. Um, I, we've talked about some of them that you, you enter a device, you don't have a similar nomenclature, where things are um, organized is going to be different. Law enforcement, again, if they're doing, even if they're doing their best, certainly can't trust the individual that they're investigating. You know, if, for instance, if you were to limit it, oh, you can look at their emails, but not this other, um, you know, folder, it would be very easy for people to just transfer information from A to B to skirt um, investigations, right? So you you kind of have these inherent problems that come with the territory. I think it's going to be interesting to see, obviously in some contexts you have um, taint teams that review these documents, but uh, in, a, in a very polarized environment, I'm not convinced that, particularly in these high profile cases, that people are going to be particularly trust, trusting of those who are um, engaged in the process. And that's very unfortunate because given the problems we have, I think it is very, very important for our leaders to foster trust. And instead, we're most certainly right now seeing the opposite of that, right? Uh, things are very polarized, very um, driven by politics, which I think is, is is a problem in and of itself. Obviously, there's a lot of other problems that we could, we could go down um, as far as you know, the entire, you know, concern, a lot of people have concerns that there's, you know, racial profiling, others have concerns of political profiling. So it's just a highly polarized environment. And so these problems we're having that are are very inherent to just where we're at technologically certainly do not help with, uh, with sort of looking at the future and hoping for more clarity and uniformity in the way we handle these matters. Is there any way to get to uniformity, though? I mean, what's the answer here? Because we're, we're going to have to have there's people are going to want an overriding law on this tech stuff and legal stuff. I don't think you can do an overriding law. Are we doomed to um, are we doomed to failure by piecemeal advancement here? And that's a weird way to say it. But that feels like what's coming here. Is that the way it feels to you? I, th- I think we need a two-pronged approach. I think the first thing people need to understand, in my view, I do think to some degree this is a consumer problem. I think we've sort of, as a culture, slow walked into these issues by not really considering the potential costs of adopting very powerful technologies for multifunctional purposes without considering 
again, the costs, right? We, and that's not to say that we, that we shouldn't have phones or anything like that, but it is, um, I think something for people to consider of how they use their technology and how much information is stored where. I don't think these are considerations, for instance, that people have really been considering before some of these more very high profile scenarios occur that kind of showed people what some problems look like, right? I would say probably five years ago, any of these warrant discussions would have been pretty obscure. And I think they're getting a lot more time in the in the limelight than they than they would have in other other years past. So I think one one thing certainly is to for for culture and individuals at an individual level of analysis to begin to consider how they want to use their devices, you know, what they want different devices to be for, so on and so forth. Um, and then as it relates to the legal side of things, I do think you're correct that one overarching law is not going to solve this problem. I think the um, judiciary is moving in the right direction, at least as far as it relates to um, having privacy rights and certain digital information. But as we all know, the judiciary moves notoriously slow. That's just how the process works. Um, it's part of, it's, it's not a bad thing, by the way. I don't consider the speed of the judiciary to be a problem per se. You don't necessarily want your uh, justice system at the judicial level to be moving too quickly. That can also pose problems. So I do think the judiciary is is moving, has been showing signs of going in the right direction on these issues. But as it relates specifically to the scope of warrants in the digital context, that is going to be a, um, I think, an area of difficulty for some time as we try to, you know, as a society work out what that looks like because I, you're right that there's no overarching law that's going to solve that problem because it it really is a problem of the information being so easy to transition from point a to point b in a digital context right that limiting where um, law enforcement can look once they have probable cause to seize the device itself becomes very difficult to say you can't look in this folder right and then there's the also the issue of cloud so for instance when you um get into a device can you only look at what is locally stored on that device or can you look at anything that is uploaded to the cloud so those are other concerns that that kind of a limitation i do think is more more force i would say is more likely to occur than others um once something is locally stored on the device i i don't see what's going to limit law enforcement from looking at that um, but as it relates to the cloud you could potentially have a requirement for a separate warrant right to view what's in the cloud yeah um, leslie corbley joining us we're going to take a quick break we come back we're going to talk some of the details of that that's the legal side of it let's talk we get back we're going to talk the political side of it the practical side of it at some point you're going to have to put legislation to pen and ink it's got to be in black and white what's that got to look like what should it look like what are we afraid it might look like we're going to get into all that <laughs> leslie corbley joining us uh on her tell right after this Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Uh, Leslie Corbley joining us. We have been talking about warrants, not the 80s band, the things that the uh, police can use to come and look through your stuff. There's some legal things involved in that you might have heard of. 
folks aren't real sure where all the lines are that we talked about the legal aspect. Let's talk about the political and the practical aspect for a second, because here's the problem. Um, anytime the technology or current events outruns the law, you've got to have new laws. Well, we know the court system is acting on this because they have to, because you go to court, both law enforcement and private citizens and advocacy groups, they're all using through the court system. That's one side of this. What's supposed to happen in the American system of governments is we go to our legislatures and we make laws about such things. I'm not super uh, enthusiastic that we're going to get good laws on this stuff anytime soon because, A, I've listened to some of these tech hearings. They have no idea what they're talking about. B, like you said, this is really complicated stuff, and we have a divided uh, legislative branch right now that's got other priorities is there anything on the horizon legislatively that might be looking to address this problem anytime soon? So one of the encouraging signs that um, we can point to is looking at states. So here in the state, well, here as an I work for the Libertas Institute, which is located in Lehigh, Utah. Right now, as you mentioned, I am temporarily on the East Coast, but uh, we have worked to pass laws in Utah that protect um, individual privacy rights, particularly as it relates to Fourth Amendment concerns. So that includes requiring a warrant before electronic information can be seized. Um, and then we are also currently really working on the issue of geofencing, wanting to ensure that general warrants are barred here in the 21st century, just as they were back um, at the founding of America, right? So I think that there are some encouraging signs. Are, my hope is on the at the state level, you're likely to see more movement than at the federal, uh, which is unfortunate. But as you mentioned, the federal Congress is very divided. Um, very few laws get through Congress that aren't uh, heavily full of pork <laughs> kind of special interest groups that have gotten together and kind of poured everything in the kitchen sink into the bill. So it is very difficult to get movement at the federal level. Well, if we can't get the federal level, what about the state level? Is there any movement now? Now, this is going to get complicated because, you know, they're going to go to court and try to get the federals anything they don't like at the state level. But, you know, these are supposed to be, you know, the, the laboratories of democracy. What at the state level? Because some of these states are actually taking some some initiative on some of these issues. Is that going to be a route to we can at least start getting some stuff moving and then maybe that'll kickstart the federal level? Sure. Some of the part of the problem here is that there are multiple um, concerns going on with privacy. So, for instance, there's like we mentioned, geofence, there's the digital scope of warrant. And then there's also things like genetic digital privacy um, is becoming a problem. So any anywhere that you have a large database um, of information, you could think of as, as sort of posing a risk. Uh, so again, in Utah, we have barred uh, the, we have, we have ensured that, that we have a law on the books ensuring that there is a warrant requirement prior to, to um, law enforcement seeking to obtain, you know, any kind of electronic information from an electronic device. So that is a good movement in the right direction. I know that Maryland passed a um, genetic, I want to say genetic data or genetic privacy bill. So that is related to DNA uh, and how you would obtain that. And several other states are making movement on privacy. I know Montana, for instance, is, is looking heavily at the facial recognition issue. So these issues are both ongoing and that the risks, um, the risks don't just relate to one type of information. And so we're, it's going to be an ongoing process uh, to attempt to ensure that individuals maintain their privacy rights in the 21st century. I do think there's more movement, though, at the state level than there is at federal, again, both for obvious reasons that federal is very polarized and also federal action is just very 
uncommon now. Um, you don't have the same, if you look at the patterns of legislation, you don't have the same type of lawmaking now that you did say in like 1970. Well, because we don't have the technology in 1970, we don't have the government we had in 1970. Let's be real clear about that. We don't have the same culture and people we had in 1970. The other problem we have when you go to legislate this stuff, and we're seeing this in the tech hearings already where they're talking about, well, we need to regulate Facebook and, and we need to regulate. Uh, we've had the court cases now where Alexa overhears crimes and things like this. The problem is like, well, they're talking about regulating Facebook. None of my kids do Facebook. Like Facebook is two technologies ago already. Like by the time they get around to regulating this stuff, we're already onto the new thing. Isn't that going to be a problem with some of this technology with the warrants is by the time Congress dithers around for five or 10 years and writes a bill on something, we're already onto the next thing and it's just passes by again. Now, I know that's a recurring thing. You're never always going to have legislation catching up all the time. But when it comes to something like warrants where the armed enforcement wing of the government can come into your home or come into your private property or come into your life and really wreck some havoc, this is a big problem with a lot. And we've seen, unfortunately, societally, this has immediate ramifications. This isn't just, you know, talking about tax code where you might pay a little extra sometime next year. People can get hurt. People can lose their property. People can have their lives wrecked. I'm a little frustrated that there ain't a sense of urgency about this issue. Do you see any sense of urgency about it? Because there needs to be. I think that the well, lack of sense of urgency often relates to the fact that it's not, it's not a simple, easy soundbite type of an issue, right? Where you can get uh, kind of an easy political win, so to speak, um, which is unfortunate. As far as something that I think would be helpful for your listeners to know, though, I, there's no requirement, like you mentioned, regulating Facebook. There's no requirement for individuals to work with with social media companies or other tech um, and communications companies that they don't trust. And I do think we need to encourage individuals to be much more cautious with whom they do business um, in, in our current era, right? If the law, if law enforcement, for instance, goes to I hypothetically Snapchat and you've never had a Snapchat account, there's nothing for them to hand over. Right. Um, and so that relates to uh, the third party doctrine. I know we've kind of moved into the political discussion rather than legal, but the third party doctrine makes it much, much easier for law enforcement to access information from um, entities like tech companies that uh, individuals have given information over to them. So essentially the third party doctrine says that once you've handed over uh, any some information to a third party entity, you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. And therefore, um, you know, it's easier for law enforcement to obtain. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons, for instance, in Utah, that we passed a bill requiring a warrant before obtaining electronic information, because obviously in the digital age, pretty much everything is done through a third party, right? It's not like um, 1960s and 70s when some of these lines of cases came out where you know, very much less, much, a much smaller amount of information was handed over to a third party, right? So again, that that relates, I know, to the legal, but it is important for people to understand that because if you know that, I think it makes it easier for you as an individual to say, huh, I know I would really like to know, company, what your policies are, what, for instance, what data do you obtain on me? Like, what, what data do you First, gather uh, because not if, for instance, with geofences, if Google didn't gather your location data, they wouldn't have that to hand over to law enforcement. Now, obviously, they do, but that's that. The point is for individuals to know it is within their power to ask these questions before they contract. Okay, I kind of want to know what what data you collect. How do you just store it? 
how long do you store different data points, right? So that you can kind of assess uh, your individual risk, because I don't think a lot of people are thinking of this as a risk calculation, but it really is. Because the reality of the situation is that once you are engaging in any kind of conduct on these platforms, you don't really necessarily have control over where that information goes. calculation the, the reason the risk calculation is all screwed up is because people don't understand their rights and you ended your piece with this and this is a good way to kind of dovetail this down a little bit law enforcement doesn't know the boundaries on this individual people don't know the boundaries on this companies don't know the boundaries on this everybody's uncertain and as you said in your piece you know everybody law enforcement defendants alike are swimming in a sea of uncertainty that's a recipe for disaster when we're talking culture and politics we want to talk about you know the the policies and whatever the hottest thing going on that is going and the, and the horse race politics and the culture politics this is stuff that can affect your everyday life because the part of the government the most people interact with is not a politician it's law enforcement this is the stuff we should really be focusing on and like you said when there's uncertainty that breeds all kinds of bad things happening and we've seen the viral videos of what happens when law enforcement doesn't know what to do with certain defendants how do we get certainty in this? Is it going to be a policy fix? Is it going to be a cultural fix where people just start taking their own responsibility for their data? Is it a technology fix where they figure out a better way to individualize, for lack of a better term, but when it comes to privacy, that's what the argument is. What's the path forward, do you think? And I know it's going to be a ratio of some of those combined, but give us a couple of things you think of. I definitely think it's going to be a combination. I think at the individual level, we really need to start. I think there needs to be good messaging. And it's something I I will be working on is uh, to ensure that people understand the risks associated with different data points. Right. So let's take a geofence warrant, for instance, where it's a reverse warrant, meaning they're seeking caches of data that has already been collected by a tech company. Um, there is already there's been the first litigation case initiated in relation to keyword search history, which can operate in the same manner. You know, tech company hand over all searches from, you know, of certain terms or certain terms combined. It could look differently depending on what the what law enforcement is asking for. But the point being that initially law enforcement obtains an anonymized data in relation to these to these requests, and then eventually it moves to an unmasking process. So I do think individuals need to understand that, not to be overly concerned of law enforcement, but to understand that if you're if you're operating in society now, you don't necessarily have control over company policies, over how easy it is for law enforcement to access data from company X. You know, and so you want to know: Am I willing to take to accept to take on this risk, right, of having this specific data point um, collected and stored, right? So for instance, it recently, there was a recent CNN article that that discussed how uh, wireless companies also store uh, location data for months and at times years. So th there's all these data points out there and they're stored in these large databases. So I think that there's an individual aspect um, that can give 
that can push the needle in the right direction. I think that also, by the way, can relate hopefully to the marketplace in the sense that companies that value privacy and value data minimization, which essentially means minimizing the number of data sets you collect information on, and therefore there's less information for you to ever hand over uh, hypothetically, right? I think that that individuals valuing their privacy and saying, hmm, I'm not sure I want to work with companies that collect data in certain ways, so on and so forth, can push the marketplace towards um, towards favorability for companies who do truly value privacy and are able to deliver that to their to consumers. So I think that's piece of the puzzle. I think policy um, is also a piece of that puzzle. Uh, for instance, the work we've done in Utah to ensure warrant requirements are strong for electronic data is important. And we do think that the law needs to change in relation to geofence warrants and other reverse warrants where law enforcement is seeking information that, um, again, these caches of data and the whole point is to, to find a suspect. You don't have a suspect on the front end when you do a geofence uh, warrant. The whole point is to get a cache of data and then you sift through it for relevance. And it's generally a three-step process that ends in unmasking. Uh, and I don't, don't think that that kind of a process is going to elicit a lot of trust from individuals right now. Again, you have a lot of people in different factions of American society that are very concerned with different types of biases that they believe are influencing uh, individuals who in powerful positions, including law enforcement. And that's just the reality on the ground. And again, I do think it's very important for individuals to understand that, that they can have control over their risk profile because the, yeah. it's going to be a, a both and approach of policy and culture. And I would also hope business practice comes into play. Yeah, we're doing a lot of wishing and hoping and we don't have a lot of faith that this is going to get better anytime soon. So we're going to keep talking to, to folks like Leslie about it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you've got going on, where they can follow you till we get you back on her tell to keep talking about this because this isn't going away. This is this is going to be the the issue in privacy rights and law for the foreseeable future. So let folks know where they can keep up with you talking about it till we get you back to talk about it with us. Sure. So I work with the Libertas Institute. I also have my um, own website. It's just my name, lesliecorbley.com. I host all of my articles there. It's a, it's a good hub just for my content. And then um, I'm also on LinkedIn and Twitter for now. Uh, in the future, I will likely add some other platforms to that. But right now I'm on Twitter at Corbley Leslie and also on LinkedIn. Folks can go in there and follow along and I post all my content on on those platforms. Yep. We'll link to all of that. You can see her Twitter on the screen there if you're watching on the YouTube channels. And we greatly appreciate your time. Leslie Corbley, uh, love the talk. Appreciate the information. And we will talk again real, real soon, my friend. Thank you for the time today. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we got to talk about one of my favorite subjects, West Virginia. Get an actual West Virginia to do it with. This is a rare treat for me. Uh, Quinn Townsend returns to Hertel. Glad to have you back. Thanks for coming back in. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, no problem. Uh, she's barely in West Virginia up there in the northern parts, but we're going to count it and accept it, and we won't hold that against her. Uh, you did some writing in the Fayette Tribune um, about the Hope Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Most states have a program kind of similar to this, uh, different. They all have different names, different acronyms, whatever. But just for the purposes, because we're going to talk a little education here. What was the Hope Scholarship? What was its intention? What does it actually turn into? Just kind of define it for folks that may not be familiar with it. Okay. The Hope Scholarship was a program to help um, state funding follow the student rather than the school when it comes to education. Um, Because at the end of the day, we care more about our children, our students in West Virginia and how how they're learning rather than, you know, the building and the school itself. Um, And so it, the program helped kids, um, it helped families who uh, needed, help with maybe private tutoring or maybe you wanted to take some classes at a private school or or just not finding the best fit in their local public school and so it was funding to help students get a great education um, from other opportunities that they that they couldn't get from their public school so the hope scholarship program um, was a support system what Mm -hmm. happened to it so earlier in the summer, I don't remember the exact date, um, a judge put an injunction on the scholarship and said that that said that it was um, unconstitutional. And so the program is now on hold until it um, goes through the next the upper court to see what their opinion on is on it. Now, here's the problem with some of this. Um, Whatever you think of public schools versus private schools, funding of the student, funding of the system, West Virginia, for all of my lifetime, has always ranked very low in their schools. It's always been a problem. Of course, there's vast swaths of rural parts of West Virginia. Um, My parents are both school teachers in West Virginia for 35 years. So this is something I'm pretty intimately aware of. Plus, I went to West Virginia schools. Overall, when you're dealing with a program like this and you've got a school system that's not well serving folks, although there's great teachers trying to do work within it, we don't want to bash everybody. How important is it to try to do things like a hope scholarship program or something innovative or, and I hate to use this term because we use it in a negative connotation of legislation, but just try something new, just try to do something to kind of move things along because these things get really stagnant in a hurry, don't they? They do. And 
I think that it's incredible, incredibly important to do something like this because there are great teachers um, and they're stuck in the same system that our that our students are in. And many of our students and teachers um, are not thriving in the status quo of education, um, particularly in West Virginia. Like you mentioned, West Virginia does not rank well um, in education outcomes with our public schools, which is unfortunate. And so the Hope Scholarship was really an opportunity for um, families to find and use other opportunities to help their children and the students in West Virginia. Now, like we said, this isn't unique. You mentioned it in your piece. It's in the Fayette Tribune. We're linking to it. 30 states offer some kind of a school uh, choice like the Hope Scholarship was. Mm -hmm. Compared to them, you said, and I'm quoting you from the piece here, the West Virginia program was lauded as the gold standard by policy experts, yet some West Virginia officials have chosen to ignore the pleas of families and instead heed the voices of things like the teachers' unions and other things. Um, the teachers' union is very strong in West Virginia. Again, I know this from firsthand experience from a long time. Uh, teachers are one of the largest employment sectors in the entire state as it comes out. They have a lot of political power and pull. How should we be talking about these things with the teachers, the public school teachers we're talking about here? Because they seem to be threatened by all this. And I understand the political side of it. But on a practical level, is there a way we could just discuss this maybe a little bit better of like, look, not every single kid is going to fit perfectly in the system. We should have some options for them. Is there a less confrontational way to discuss this, do you think? Yeah, well, I think you hit it um the nail on the head with that, how you phrase that question is this is about our students. This isn't about us as adults. Um, it's about our children having the best learning opportunities that they can. And I think many teachers recognize that not all of their students in their class are thriving in the current way the class and system is set up. And that's to no fault of the teachers. It's just how public education is with children sitting in desks listening to teachers, that doesn't work for every child and that's okay. And we should be providing opportunities for those children who who are not thriving in the traditional classroom setting. You had an interesting quote in here, one state Senator, um, Quinn Townsend joining us. She's got an article out in the Fayette Tribune. Um, he said, I never heard of anybody moving to our state because they had great private schools. They moved to a state because they have great public education. Nobody's going to come to West Virginia because we implement this program, setting aside the ridiculous wordy word there where he's, you know, proving a negative that doesn't exist to start with. Mm -hmm. You had a pretty good retort for the senator here, didn't you? Sure. My retort to that is, um, first of all, that's false because people are moving here, including my family. We chose to stay in West Virginia after my um, education at West Virginia University, uh, partially because of the Hope Scholarship. My child is not even school age yet, um, but the Hope Scholarship is an incredible opportunity that I want my child and our future children to have uh, access to it or something similar to it. And additionally, no one is moving to West Virginia for our public schools either um, because they they don't rank well. No. And let's talk about that for just a second, because you do live in West Virginia. You went to school at WVU, which Morgantown, you got to explain to people, Morgantown is very much a college town. Mm -hmm. It's one of the great college towns in America, but it is kind of a bubble as opposed to the rest of West Virginia in a lot of ways. 
why for an outsider that hasn't been to West Virginia, they just know the stereotypes and the and the jokes and such. Why is the West Virginia school system so lowly ranked all the time? Because the fact of the matter is West Virginia is usually ranked low on just about everything. And those things all go together, don't they? They do. Um, I think generally speaking, um, scores, education scores, national rankings um, often fall along with poverty and lack of diversity. And there's also something to be said about just living somewhere rural um, is not bad. I'm happy to live somewhere rural, but it's also really hard to get internet access in a lot of the state. And that um, I know that's kind of maybe not a direct correlation, but um, education really does rely on access to um, to outside sources. And it's harder to get that in West Virginia. The beautiful mountains make it harder to get internet. But it, but it does connect. Look, put your, you're an economist by trade. Put your economist hat on for a second. When you have a population that struggles to get educated, when you have a pr- population that has limited access to the internet, which is the tool for, you know, technology, and that's how you expand your world in the modern age is the internet. And there's wide swaths of the state that doesn't have broadband. Those things have economic indicators when you start looking down the road 10, 15, 20 years. If you don't have a good educated workforce, if you don't have incentives to keep people, look, we saw that census data. You know, we're the only state in the nation where we're not only losing population, but precipitously losing it. West mm-hmm. Virginians are an endangered species. That's just a fact. And things like education, that causes economic waves that go forward into the future and become generational problems, don't they? Yes, absolutely. And that's why something like the HOPE Scholarship Program is important because um, giving more educational opportunities to our children can only be beneficial for our children and also for the state at large because, like you said, if we have a better, if our children are better educated, they're a stronger workforce um, and they're less likely to leave the state. And I think um, if you just look at national trends, parents are demanding programs similar to the HOPE Scholarship Program. They're demanding school choice um, opportunities. And I think the HOPE Scholarship Program is a way to incentivize people to come to the state. Yeah. And the other thing about something like the HOPE Scholarship, and not that it was a perfect program either. You could, you know, you could go in and do some policy tweaking on this. You could change how it's set up. There were some funding mechanisms that were kind of jacked up and how it worked just to be honest. So it's not that it was perfect, but something like this, if you're somewhere, you know, if you're down in the coal fields where they're just, you know, not a whole lot economically going on. If you're somewhere like in Fayette County where the opioid epidemic is getting really, really bad, these parts of the of the state that aren't the Valley and aren't Morgantown and aren't the DC exurbs, that's where this stuff really starts biting in because there's fewer and fewer options anyway and then if you give people just a little bit of a freedom or a little bit of options, that might make a big, big difference, even though it's in a small percentage of the population. Like we just said, you're talking about a declining population. Don't we kind of need to just take the wins where we can get them here? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, Quinn Townsend. I get frustrated talking about this because I love the state of West Virginia so much. You know, most of my family's there. I grew up there. You know, I've got a daughter that just started college there, wants to be a teacher, wants to teach in West Virginia. This okay. stuff drives home for me. Um, you know, I think of my parents' generation, you know, they were they were there through the decline through the 60s and then they retired in the mid 2000s. You've decided to make a home in West Virginia. So you tell me because you you came here and, and made your home here. Outsiders always ask me, what is it about you crazy people that you love West Virginia so much? We see all these problems and da, 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 da. And, you know, you get the jokes, too, and all that. You tell them because you're newer to this and it's fresh for you and it's meaning for you. You already talked about your own child and thinking about their future. For an outsider, just kind of explain that unexplainable part of West Virginia and why people get so passionate and fight for it like this. That's a really good question. Yeah, there is something unexplainable, a little bit hard to explain about West Virginia um, outside of Morgantown and, you know, the D.C. vacation land um, that is just West Virginia is full of the most real people I have ever met. All, my husband's family is is are West Virginians. They have always been West Virginians. And I love associating and talking with them. They are so real. I love their perspective. Um, West Virginia is beautiful. Um, and I see a lot of opportunities here. And I think the rest of the nation um, just kind of poo-poos the state. And that's unfortunate. I think there's a lot of opportunities in the state. Yeah. And to bring up a point you brought, you talked about the broadband and the internet. Mm -hmm. um, I got a family member that's doing real estate investment. They literally have a line on a map on the wall in the office of where CenturyLink starts and where okay. Frontier ends. And they just like, we cannot develop anywhere there's Frontier Internet because the Internet's so bad. Nobody wants it. Like we can't do, you know, Airbnb rentals or people that want to come in, people that want to work remotely. You know, you, you have that area of West Virginia that's just an outdoor paradise. The people that are, you know, upwardly mobile, they used to call them. Now we just call them hybrid workers. You know, the people that want outdoor lifestyle and work online, it's exactly the place they want. Like you said, it's close to D.C., close to other parts of the country. If you don't have things like broadband, and you don't have things like good school, they're not going to move there. Yeah. And and this is just part of it. And, you know, there's not for folks that don't know, there's not a whole lot of private schools in West Virginia. There's some usually smaller church schools. There's a few Montessori schools in the bigger cities. But it it's not like they're a threat to the public education system. Um. So I. I, I, things like the Hope Scholarship to me, and I'm, again, I'm personally invested. I'm not going to pretend I'm not biased here. These things, is it just too simplified to say that when it comes to things like education, maybe we should do more all of the above than just saying, let's stick to our one or two niches and trying to fix something that may be unfixable. Let's just go with all of the above and, and try some stuff like Hope Scholarships. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think education every, across the nation is, um, just kind of stagnant. And I think COVID, especially with having kids at home and figuring out how to do school on Zoom and whatever else schools were doing, I think really shook up the nation in in realizing there needs to be changes because um, the status quo isn't working. And all of the above is at this point is a, is good because we don't know what is great, the best for, for every student, but we need to be trying something. 
Yeah. And West Virginia is under a generational sea change right now because that older generation is passing off. There's young people coming inside those demographics, even though we're bleeding, getting younger, getting more diverse. I'm excited to see what the future West Virginia is. Um, Quinn Townsend, love having you back again. Now that I got somebody we can get on regular about West Virginia, we're probably going to wear you out because I love talking West Virginia. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. All right. I'm on Twitter at Quinn underscore Townsend, numeral one. Um, I'm not on there a lot, but that's where you can find me um, and see my latest updates. Yep, And we'll put our, our Young Voices page up as well. She's got this piece in the Fayette Tribune. That's a great paper. Folks that don't know, uh, the small town papers have kind of been dying off. They took three of the small town papers, combined them in the Fayette Tribune. I've actually done some opinion writing for them as well. Cool paper. Give it out. Always happy to support local media. And Quinn Townsend, always happy to have your support. Thank you for spending a little time with us today. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.